was living in Breckenridge and was like, yeah, I'm never going to leave this area. It's fantastic. Jim Spence, who was the VP of mountain operations for Copper Mountain, he was walking out the door. He's like, you're going to come see me in Idaho sometime. And I was like, Idaho? Nah, I don't think so. And uh, later that October, he called me up and I was like, okay, I'll come check it out. Landed in Boise. Drove over Valley County and had this big, wide open valley unfold in front of me. Pop into the resort. Jim Spence pops out to get in the truck. And we drove to the top of the mountain. I was like, wow, this is uh, a serious mountain. And lo and behold, here I am still in, in Valley County. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Back to one of the storm's favorite ski states today, Idaho. First, if you're new here, the podcast is only a small part of the storm. To get the full experience, you need to sign up for the email newsletter at stormskiing.com. Last week, email subscribers not only received the podcast conversation with top ski journalist Jason Blevins well before the rest of the planet, but they also got stories on Sun Peaks joining the Icon Pass, Telluride renewing its agreement with the Epic Pass, and Mountain Capital Partners taking over operations at Willamette Pass, Oregon, either exactly when the news was announced or shortly thereafter. That is because I am plugged in with all of these companies and in many cases have that news in advance so I can get the story ready to go the instant the news goes live. In fact, I already know that IndyPass is announcing 11 new partners next week on Tuesday, October 11th. If you want to be smarter than your friends who get all their ski news from Facebook, subscribe to The Storm. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, I have a new partner to announce today and I am pumped about this one because it is a service I use every single day in the wintertime. Open snow. Look, I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas and I am not afraid to get after it. That means I have a lot of options anytime it snows. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing. Is the Lake Erie snowbelt plastering Western New York? Do I need to head up to the Tug Hill Plateau? Are the Catskills hot? Or is it the resorts along the Green Mountain Spine in Vermont? Or the Whites? Or the Presidentials? Or is a Southern Storm plastering PA or Virginia? Frankly, it's more than I could sort through myself. That's why I use Open Snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, hourly forecasts, mountain cams, and resort by resort snow forecasts. Yes, they are now a partner, but I have been using Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. Here's another way to get great content you can subscribe to Mountain Gazette. What is Mountain Gazette? Well, it's a skiing magazine, but it is also a climbing, backpacking, trekking, fishing, and running magazine. And it goes on, ranging widely in, over, and through the mountains and digging deeply into mountain subjects of all kinds. 
a given issue can cover everything from mountain play to mountain people, politics, culture, trends, travel, and the environment. There are also some subjects in Mountain Gazette's pages that defy categorization. There are more than a few surprises, news reviews, and many unusual side trips into the most remote corners of the world's highest places. All of them presented with a humor, freshness, vitality, and originality that have both won and lost the magazine friends, but rarely left readers feeling lukewarm about them. But do not take our word for it. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 99, Ken Ryder, General Manager of Brundage Mountain, Idaho. Okay, here we go. The Storm's third Idaho podcast of the year. Had a tremendous conversation with Tamarack's Scott Turlington in January. Came back with Bogus Basin General Manager Brad Wilson over the summer. And guess what? We will be back in Idaho next week when I talk to Sun Valley General Manager Pete Sontag. But today, Brundage. This place does not get a lot of run on the national scene, but this is a big time ski area. It is the fourth largest ski area in Idaho with nearly 2,000 acres of terrain. Next summer, they will be dropping their second high-speed quad onto the mountain. They have a new lodge going in, they're building residences on mountain, and they have just a tremendous master plan working that will make this place even bigger, potentially dropping a new lift into the sergeant's area, which is currently considered backcountry, as well as two new terrain pods and lifts off the east side and a pair of lifts on Temptation Knob. This joint may not stay off the radar much longer, however. With 320 inches of snow and situated right up the road from McCall, one of the West's great mountain towns, this place is very attractive for refugees getting priced out of the more famous ski towns like Crested Butte or Steamboat or Park City. Already, Brundage is the second most redeemed Western resort on the Indy Pass right after Powder Mountain, Utah. We will get into all of that today. One bit of advice. This pod, like all storm skiing podcasts, is going to be a whole lot better if you're listening while looking at the Storm Skiing Journal article that accompanies it. Again, you can find that at stormskiing.com, where I have laid out the trail map, the master plan, and all sorts of other goodies that help you visualize what we're talking about as we break it down. Once you've got that open, let's do it. My guest today has been the general manager of Brundage Mountain, Idaho since 2018. Brundage features 1,920 acres of skiable terrain served by six lifts on a 1,920-foot vertical drop. The ski area averages 320 inches of annual snowfall. Prior to joining the team at Brundage in 2017, he worked at Snow King, Grand Targhee, Tamarack, and IntraWest where he began his ski career in 1997. Ken Ryder is my guest. Ken, welcome to the storm. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing this morning? Doing great, Stuart. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you. So first of all, Ken, how was your summer, and how are winter preparations going so far at Brundage? Well, the summer was great. A little bit more like the summer just to pre-COVID. So our visitation, you know, during the last two COVID summers were 
was pretty high. And I, I think we're kind of seeing us get through the, that COVID, everybody wanting to get out and travel. And um, I think with the economy going right now with the potential um, challenges that we've got, uh, we kind of saw a summer that was a little bit more like the 2019 summer. Still a really good summer. Uh, our second best summer ever. So we were very excited about that. Preparation for winter. Um, it is October 3rd. And, you know, I, I kind of start watching the forecast, looking at the, the long range uh, right about this time. You know, I'm seeing places like Rapo Basin, Loveland, uh, Showdown, all getting snow over the weekend mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. been checking out our, our webcams every morning when I wake up, you know, just wondering, okay, when, when's that first day that we're going to see a little snow on the ground. We've got a, a lot of projects that we need to wrap up in the next 45 days, which always makes me very anxious when we're getting right down to the wire. Um, we've got a lot of moving parts that we're going to be moving some office space around, getting a patrol building done that, you know, looks like it's going to happen right as we're trying to open. So I can kind of foresee us opening and moving all in the same week. So do you have a target opening date at Brundage most years, or do you just follow the snow, follow the weather? Both. <laughs> so, um, we have a, a target opening date. We like to try to get uh, some of the mountain open on Thanksgiving Friday. And we've been about 75% successful in doing that for the last uh, six years. Um, it's really a matter of, you know, temperatures and then Mother Nature hopefully helping us to, to get that done. We've got very limited snowmaking on the private land, only at the base area. And we, uh, in the past, have only, a couple of years, we've only opened Easy Street, which is our, our beginner terrain. Uh, a couple of years, we've been able to open like Bear Chair and Easy Street. But, you know, it really de depends on Mother Nature. And then we typically try to just do weekends until the first or second week in December when we can open the whole mountain. So lots to talk about with Brundage, and I want to get into all of that in a little bit here. But I just want to go back here first, Ken, because you have had a really fascinating ski career, as I alluded to in the intro. So let's go back to the start here. How did you get that first job at IntraWest? Where were you based? And was that, in fact, your first job in skiing? Uh, it, in fact, was not my first job in skiing. Okay. And I, in 1993 or 94, uh, winter in 94, I actually made snow at Eldora outside of uh, oh, wow. Boulder. So I was oh, cool. in operations making snow, chasing temperatures around the mountain at night, moving snow guns, you know, working the, working the AM shift. And that was my real first foray into uh, mountain operations and working at a resort. And from there, I kind of uh, backed off and uh, went back to school at CU for uh, got my graduate degree in MBA uh, with a specialization in marketing. And then kind of as I was finishing up with that, um, had been working for some high tech companies and telecommunications. And I hated working in an office. Didn't like that at all. Didn't like working downtown Denver. So I had the opportunity to start working for Copper Mountain at the time, which was owned by IntraWest nice. and had all my uh, graduate uh, student friends taking signing bonuses and going working for big firms. And I, I took a job at Copper managing their front range ticket sales. 
which at the time they sold tickets, uh, something like uh, several million dollars worth of tickets in King Supers, Safeways, all the front range ski and snowboard shops. And, you know, I'm finishing my graduate degree and, and took a $10 an hour job in the ski industry. And my friends were like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, ah, I get, I get a free season pass. <laughs> and that's kind of what hooked me. Um, had the opportunity to, to take my next position with uh, copper, which was managing all the sponsorships and promotions, which gave me the opportunity to work with all the departments on the mountain, everything from the, the race crew to uh, doing a deep dive with the food and beverage team and the operations, the mountain operations team. So then, you know, from there, David Barry at the time kind of merged copper and winter park. And I was able to, to work at both mountains, which was really cool. So it was a great learning opportunity. Some of the best days of my life. And I can remember thinking back at the time I lived in Breckenridge is like, why would anybody ever want to move from this place? This is absolutely fantastic. I'm in heaven. I'm in the most competitive ski arena in the world right there in summit County. And somehow I uh, ended up in Idaho. So, Let's pause there in the 90s and take us back here, Ken, because with hindsight, you can see IntraWest didn't work out the way that probably it looked like their trajectory was was pretty strong in the 90s. They ended up getting absorbed, you know, selling a bunch of resorts, eventually absorbed and are now part of Altera. But in the 90s, IntraWest was a beast. This was when Vail was just a few resorts in Colorado. Take us back to that time, this IntraWest heyday. What was it like working for that company when it was growing and piling up resorts and becoming this continental global ski behemoth? Well, it was great. I mean, I, my focus was really at Copper and Winter Park, but, you know, we were in the center of the a very competitive um, arena with Vail and Rappo Basin, Keystone Breckenridge, you know, all the Colorado mountains right around us. So, you know, we were... Uh, it, it was a great, great period of time. Um, IntraWest was a great company, like significant amount of training and focus on the people in the, in the, you know, in the, the staff and the people, which was great. Uh, had a lot of opportunity to learn there. Worked with some great folks, learned a lot from um, everybody that was there. And I, I would say it's some of the best days of my life, kind of the salad days, right? Um mm-hmm. You know, we were at the time, you know, when Copper and Winter Park were together, uh, David Barry was always like, hey, you know, we're going to do more skier visits than Whistler Blackcomb. So it was pretty cool to kind of be like, oh, yeah, Copper, Winter Park, we're we're uh, trying to beat Whistler Blackcomb for, for skier visits. You know, it was kind of it, it was a great time. And the company, in fact, owned Whistler Blackcomb. It did. It owned Squaw Valley, now Palisades Tahoe, Mountain Creek in New Jersey, Mammoth. It was a monster. It slowly started, though, to fall apart. It sold. Mont St. Marie was the first resort that it sold in 2002. You didn't leave till 2004. Did you start to see cracks in the IntraWest Foundation? Were there any signs that maybe this thing wasn't sustainable over the long term? You know, there, there weren't signs that I picked up, up on at the time. You know, we had a really good uh, team in Colorado. Interwest Colorado. And, you know, we worked up a lot with a lot of the team members of a lot of the other resorts, um, kind of in, you know, some cross-functional teams, but I didn't really pick up on, you know, the 
any um, kind of red flags out there myself. Uh, we were just, you know, moving along and things were happening. And um, I think it was after I left that, you know, I, I started to see like, oh, yeah, you know, I guess, I guess you know, times are changing for IntraWest. And, but when I was there, things were, were uh, let's say, peachy keen. So you leave in 2004, go to what ended up being another ill-fated project in Tamarack. But going back to 2004, this was an exciting time. This was the first major U.S. ski resort to be built from the ground up since Beaver Creek in 1980. And I hosted Scott Turlington on the podcast earlier this year, and he took us through the rise and the fall and now the rise again of Tamarack. But tell us this, why did you leave to go to Tamarack? And what do you remember about that time and what it was like to be part of that project? It was an interesting time. Let's just say that. I mean, like I said earlier, um, you know, I was living in Breckenridge and was like, yeah, I'm never going to leave this area. It's fantastic. Um, kind of in the, the competitive center of the ski world. And uh, at the time, Jim Spence, who was the VP of mountain operations for Copper Mountain, um, had left that uh, April of 2004. Um, he was walking out the door carrying his last boxes of books and you know, gear. And I was at, uh, helping host sensation, um, which was a, a music event that wrapped up the, the season at, at copper. And he's like, you're going to come see me in Idaho sometime. And I was like, Idaho, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lo and behold, later that October, he called me up and he was like, Hey, you got to come check this place out. Um, I'd worked with Jim quite a bit on the operation side from the sponsorship front. And I was like, okay, I'll come check it out. Uh, landed in Boise, um, got to meet some of the team. Most of the team at the time was, was based in Boise, uh, kind of the, the real estate team for Tamarack. Um, and then drove up the highway 55, the Payette river. And was just like, wow, this is an absolutely beautiful drive going up to the Valley County, drove over Valley County and, you know, had this big wide open Valley, uh, unfold in front of me with uh, Tamarack off on the, the west side of the valley. Drove the dirt road back to Tamarack. Um, had a, a double, you know, double uh, semi truck just barreling down the road behind me. I'm in this U-Haul truck or U-Haul <laughs> car from Boise. You know, it's not four-wheel drive. Kind of doing the whoop-de-doos all the way into the resort. Wondering if this guy is going to run <laughs> over me. Uh, pop into the resort. Jim Spence pops out of, I, I don't think there were any permanent structures. There were a couple of modular offices. The sprungs weren't up. There were no lifts up. He said, get in the truck. And we drove to the top of the mountain. I was like, wow, this is uh, a serious mountain. And um, that kind of that kind of hooked me. Talked to my wife at the time. Well, still my wife. Jeez. Um, <laughs> talked to her into, to move into Idaho. Got to meet the whole team. And um, lo and behold, here I am, still in, in Valley County. You move up to Idaho. Tell what did you find there? Tell us about discovering this new ski state and and what it was like working up there and bringing that project to life. Well, the, well, the whole misnomer of a new ski state is like you know skiing started in the U.S. at Sun Valley. So I, you know I think that people just kind of forgot that there were skiing in Idaho. And the thing that really attracted me about Idaho was like skiing like it used to be. Um, you know, 
I think Summit County, some of the bigger players got a little bit too much into the cattle car mentality where you're just trying to pump as many people through the resorts as possible. And the thing about Idaho was a little bit, uh, had, had the opportunity to be found. Um, an, enough people knew about it that, you know, it was, uh, it was very comfortable. It was like how, how skiing used to be. Um, you would go out and kind of have plenty of space to, to roam um, on your skiing days. And just, you know, it was, kinda, it was kind of a throwback. And it just presented a great opportunity for me to be able to, you know, come in and help um, hopefully start up and, and, and grow a new resort. The first one since, you know, arguably, you know, I think Deer Valley and Beaver Creek would argue back and forth, which ones were the last at the time, but uh, to open a new resort just presented a challenge to me that I couldn't pass up. So before we talk about what happened at Tamarack, for those who aren't familiar with the area, Tamarack's right down the road from Brundage. Did you have a chance to pop up to Brundage when you were working at Tamarack? And what were your first impressions of the resort that you would one day run? Gotcha. You know, I, we were so busy at Tamarack at the time. Um, <laughs> I hardly got to pull to pull my head out of my space at the at the mountain there. Um, I, I came up to Brundage a couple of times to, to, to just to get away from it. And you could tell that, you know, there was something special here, had the best snow in Idaho at the time. They still, you know, we still kind of hang our hat on the best snow in Idaho. Uh, but for the most part, I was spending my time at Tamarack, um, getting things up and running, getting our team in place, uh, working with the crew that was there to help drive and, and deliver a, a great guest experience to the, the people that were coming in. So you worked at Tamarack when it opened. When did things start to go wrong at Tamarack? And, and when did you realize it was time to get out of there? That's a loaded question. <laughs> you know, there were always challenges, uh, especially in a startup like that. And, you know, I, I think it was, oh, we were, we were hosting the grand, the second Grand Prix of snowboarding and it was right around. So that had been like February of 2006. Uh, my wife was also pregnant with our second child at the time. So it was, you know, had kind of the double stress going on. And, you know, we were starting to see some right sizing of our construction efforts at the time and real estate sales were starting to dip um, a little bit. But it's kind of when you started to see things happening. And um, I, I think most of us, we were we were in it. We were drinking the Kool-Aid. We were like, this thing's going to work. It's you know, we've got a fantastic experience here. So, you know, most of us put our heads down and we're like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get through this. And, um, you know, operationally, we had a great operations team. There was a good real estate team and, you know, with the economy kind of changing in 07 and 08, uh, things just kind of went a different direction. Um, you know, hindsight, I mean, everybody's got their own little things that they could say, you know, Hey, we shouldn't have, built the bridges to nowhere yet. We should have focused on the core of the village and gotten things done like that before we expanded out into the nether regions. But, um, you know, that's all hindsight, right? <laughs> <laughs> As you look at Tamarack today, and and again, I'd imagine you flip this and say, you don't have much time to get away from Brundage these days down to Tamarack, but what what, are, what is your reaction or what are your thoughts as you watch what Scott Turlington and his team are doing to turn that place around now? 
I think Scott's doing a fantastic job. Um, we still, we're, we're good friends and, you know, remain in contact. Uh, I still get down there and ski a couple times a year, get down mountain bike a couple times in the summer. And, uh, you know, I think Tamarack and Brundage are great reciprocal resorts in a, a region that has the opportunity to drive a lot of visitation. Um, you know, they've got some good vert, a uh, little bit less terrain. We've got more terrain and the best snow in Idaho. So I think all of that kind of combined together makes for Valley County and Adams County as a, a great uh, wintertime destination, as well as summertime too, with our, both of our summer, summertime offerings. So you get a lot of snow at Brundage, but where you went after Tamarack gets more snow than just about anybody. You landed at Grand Targhee. Talk about working at Grand Targhee and why you went there. Yeah, you had to bring that up, right? <laughs> Man, Targhee has some great, unbelievable snow, uh, over 500 inches a year. And the people at Grand Targhee, the people that go there, uh, they're a special breed. Um, stay in touch with a lot of those folks. And I really, really enjoyed working at Targhee. Um, and ski in there. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's just time to go check out a, another opportunity. And, um, you know, that's what I did. But I learned a lot at Targi working with Jordy, um, good dude. And I uh, got to jump into a, a lot of things that, you know, he and I were able to, to work on some things together and kind of uh, maybe right size some of their visitation and, and get some things going where, you know, we were able to have a lot of get, get the visitation going there in the wintertime, really focus on the snow, um, get lodging, rocking and rolling. And, you know, it was just a, it was a great place to be, be and a great, great time to be there. So I, I'm not sure if you worked at Snow King before or after Targi, but you were there briefly and then off to Brundage. How did the opportunity to move over to Brundage come up and what made that appealing to you? Yeah, well, you know, both my girls were born here in, in um in McCall and a couple of summers, well, a couple of summers ago, seven summers ago now, <laughs> geez, time flies, right? My, uh, my girls were at a Girl Scout camp here in McCall at, uh, on Payette Lake. And I had, you know, my brother-in-law was over here, still had a bunch of friends here in McCall and, you know, brought the girls over to Girl Scout camp and we we're sitting on top of um, the McCall Brew Pub's deck. And my wife was like, man, wouldn't it be great to, to be back over here and living here and be close to her brother and everything? And I kind of, you know, I put that comment in my pocket. Um, and, you know, we walked, we went back to, to Driggs and we're working a couple of more years over there and uh, was uh, doing a little stint in, at Snow King with Ryan Stanley. Um, just another, they've got a fantastic bunch of stuff going on over there with their summertime activities. But, um, Opportunity came up. Uh, I got a phone call from actually a number of people here at Brundage. Um, the former uh, marketing and sales director was planning on leaving and got a call from one of the owners, got a call from the executive or the, the general manager at the time, got a call from April, the communications manager. And Jared, the the former director of Mount, or the director of uh, marketing and sales, and saying, "Hey, um, I'm thinking about leaving. We think you would be the right guy to at least apply for this position." And um, I love McCall. Called my wife up and said, "Hey, what do you think about going and taking a trip to McCall? That opportunity that you talked about a couple of years ago may come to light." 
And uh, that's kind of how it all happened. Came over here and met with uh, Judd DeBoer and, and uh, Bob Looper and Mike DeBoer, who I'd, I'd known since, you know, 2004 when I was working here at Tamarack, except for Bob. Got to meet him at the time uh, back in 2017. And uh, the opportunities was kind of too good to give to, to pass up. You know, it was uh, coming in as the assistant general manager and director of marketing and sales uh, with a beeline to being the general manager as, as soon as I, you know, kind of got my feet wet um, here for the first year. And um, it was kind of the opportunity I, I couldn't pass up, kind of get back to McCall, get back to the lakes in the summertime, the mountain biking over here, best snow in Idaho and kind of just getting in back into the side of the state of Idaho. So that's kind of how that all came about. Sometimes it just all works out. You think of yes. 473 ski areas in the United States and what are the chances that the one that sits atop the city that you want to move to that job comes open for, for those who aren't familiar with McCall here, Ken, just talk about that town a little bit because it's a terrific ski town. It doesn't have the name recognition of a steamboat or an Aspen or Telluride or Park City, but nonetheless, it's a terrific little place. Talk about McCall and the quality of life and the atmosphere there. Yeah, I mean, the, the quality of life at McCall is just fantastic. We've got, you know, in the summertime, there's ample recreational opportunities with Payette Lake and, and Cascade with uh, boating, water skiing, wakeboarding, wake surfing, plenty of mountain biking opportunities, just the the Access to outdoor recreation in the summertime here is unprecedented. And then in the wintertime, uh, McCall's, you know, way back in the day, it was known as Ski Town USA. Uh, Steamboat kind of maybe got that name trademarked and, and, and got it away from McCall, <laughs> but that's a different story. I wasn't here for that. You still see a couple of posters around town that were done in the 70s that said McCall, Idaho, Ski Town USA. Uh, so if you see one of those, grab it. Um, so, you know, just being able to, to come back here and, you know, the backcountry access for skiing, the snowmobile access, having a couple of uh, ski areas, got, you know, Tamarack, Brundage, and then the little ski hill uh, just at the bottom of, or just in between McCall and, and Brundage is the little ski hill, which is, you know, one of those feeder ski areas that, you know, has a, great after-school program, really uh, brings skiing to, to light for a lot of kids and youth in the, in the community. Um, it place is just kind of a, a little mecca that, um, sh- actually, I should stop talking about it. And I, don't really, <laughs> I was just going to say. don't really want to tell people about McCall. So. I was just going to say that the, the locals are going to get grumpy with me for blowing up their spot, but it, are you seeing, as you zoom out and, and you look at things like worker housing, if you look at a town like Crested Butte, which is just being completely ruined by short-term rentals, or Aspen, where, quote, the billionaires are pricing out the millionaires, are you seeing those sort of pricing pressures in McCall, or is it still an affordable place to live? Affordables are relative, Correct. <laughs> yes, uh, sir. They're, they're, we're, we're seeing a lot of the same problems that everybody's seeing in any mountain region, any resort region in the U.S. And, you know, we're doing, Brundage is doing a lot. The community is doing a lot to really actively try and to provide some solutions uh, to help 
provide housing and then other kind of workforce opportunities for the workforce to live in. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing the same pressures. You know, we're a little more remote remote here. Uh, the entire Valley County region is, you know, about 10,000 people. McCall's a little bit over 4,000. Um, you know, and, and we're one of the their larger employees, employers, along with like, you know, St. Luke's Hospital, Albertsons Corporation, and, and some of the, the logging companies that do still exist around here. But um, we're seeing the same pressures. And, you know, we're taking a very active approach of uh, trying to, you know, work on our uh, employee wages. We've taken all of our entry level uh, positions to at least $15 an hour, which, you know, for this area is, you know, is, is a significant step. You know, we're still a small little ski area in, in Idaho. And when you see places like, you know, Vail and uh, Altera taking their entry level wages to $20 an hour, um, it kind of makes a shake in our boots a little bit because, you know, we just don't have the wherewithal to, to get there. But I, I think that that's where we're going to start seeing more pressures is, you know, wages, culture, um, housing. We're, we're doing a lot of work on the housing front. We've probably got at least seven irons in the fire and some of the irons are very hot. We've got a great partnership with the Shore Lodge that we've had for a number of years, about five years. And Shore Lodge is a hotel right here in town, as well as a private club, uh, Shore Lodge in the Whitetail. They've got employee housing for about uh, 400 people in the summertime that a portion of that sits idle in the wintertime. So we've partnered with them to rent at least, uh, I believe this year we've, we're going to have up to 20 beds in their employee housing for our J1s. Um, it's right in, right in McCall. So we've been doing that for about five years. And then, uh, about five years ago, we also purchased an RV park, Creekside RV park and campground down in New Meadows, which is a, a bedroom community just to the West of Brundage, where we, um, have a number of manufactured homes that Brundage owns. And then we, uh, have beds for at least, uh, 16 individuals down there. And then, we also rent RV spaces for maybe the more hardy employee that has their own RV and wants to, to camp all winter long um, at a, a significantly reduced rate. And then we've also just recently purchased the former um, New Meadows schoolhouse, which was built in 1939. It was a school until I think 1974, and then was a church, a gathering area, kind of a a number of things, but we, we purchased this historic schoolhouse last spring and then have been spending this entire summer converting it to dormitory style housing for up to 18 individuals. So that's been a, a really great project that we're working on. Um, the, the former classrooms are going to be nine individual dorm style rooms. Each room has, except for the, except for the manager's room, um, each room is going to have two beds in it with their own private bath. There'll be a shared uh, community space you know, on the first level and then a shared uh, kitchen uh, for everybody. But, you know, giving individuals the opportunity to have their own kind of private space, we've got that going on. And then there's a number of things that we're working on with uh, the city of McCall, um, as well as the Forest Service and, and a few other folks. So, you know, we're not even close to probably being halfway through our employee housing program, but 
you know, right now we anticipate by the time we open this year, we'll have beds for up to 64 individuals. And we'll continue to, to focus on that as, as we grow out the resort. So many cool creative solutions there. And it echoes what Scott Turlington and I discussed that they're doing down at Tamarack, which is that really neat sort of uh, those quick structures, those sort of tube shape things that they're putting up down there, which right. is a really neat solution to uh, sort of a pop-up neighborhood. So, so let's, let's recenter this here, Ken. So it, obviously housing is one big element of what you're working on. Let's go back to 2018. You have been at Brundage for a year. You take the general manager position. What's the state of the ski area? What's working? Where are there opportunities? Lay it out for us. What were you looking at four years ago when you took this job? Well, you know, the biggest opportunity were, you know, just being able to get back and focus on the guest as well as the employee. You know, Brundage was established in, in 1961, uh, very independent family owned ski area. And yeah, I would say maybe, you know, our buildings, our facilities, lifts, infrastructure, we're getting a little long in the tooth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just having the ability to start focusing on what our guests were telling us, um, making sure that, you know, we were providing a great guest experience. You know, one of our, our biggest things was, Hey, the bathroom stink. Uh, mm-hmm. we got our facilities team to focus in and hone in on, honing in on that, you know, cleanliness, bathrooms, um, facilities, and, and just started to, started to chip away at, okay, how do we do what we're doing? Which, you know, everything that was happening w- was good, but how do we do it better? How do we start to change and deliver to what our new guests are asking for? Um, upgraded lifts, upgraded trails, uh, better facilities, more seating, more food. And, you know, you can't do it all at once. So you just have to start chipping away and, you know, looking at our pricing, looking at, you know, where we were with, uh, you know, our season pass base, we have a tremendously loyal and very large season pass base. It's, you know, it's very exciting to see that, but, you know, we're missing opportunity to kind of introduce Brundage in this area to additional skiers and riders. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that we had a good uh, ticket offering to kind of introduce Brundage into some, some additional people. So, you know, we just kind of really w- working on our, our total product mix, um, got rid of a lot of products that maybe were redundant that we didn't need that uh, actually didn't solve the problems or the challenges that we thought they were and, and actually reduced our overall efficiency. and. Um, you know, just kind of redid our products mix. And I feel like we're, we're in a good space right now. Looked at things like, you know, the indie pass, um, our reciprocal deals, and uh, we're able to really kind of reestablish what we were and what we were going to offer to our guests. As the general manager, obviously there's a lot you can do, but a lot of what you're able to do really comes down to ownership, right? Correct. And and the resources that they provide you with. Mm-hmm. So Brundage has always been a locally owned resort, but you went through a leadership, uh, an ownership transition two years ago. Tell us about the old owners, legacy owners. Tell us about the new owners and what this group's mission and objectives are. Right. Well, the the own, or, old ownership, the DeBoers, they're part of the uh, the ownership of the uh, Brundage Mountain Resort still, um, and great people love them. 
Uh, Judd's a fantastic individual and just one of those charismatic Idaho guys that, you know, you, you couldn't walk away with not seeing the twinkle in his eye and the smile on the side of his face. Um, he, he, you know, passed away a number of years ago and the new ownership came in and um, Bob Looper was the managing or who was on the, the board of directors for Brundage was the first individual that wasn't a family member that was on that board was asked to, to put together a, an opportunity to, to have somebody else manage your own Brundage. And Bob, uh, fiercely loyal to Idaho, um, even though he grew up in the Midwest, uh, was able to put together a group of Idaho families, um, about 13 different uh, groups that came together and all from Idaho that um, acquired and basically put a deal together to uh, create Brundage Mountain Holdings, which is the owner of Brundage Mountain Resort, as well as uh, all of the private land that was at the base area and acquire that from the individual that, that owned that and, and kind of bring everything back together. So all of the assets are owned by Brundage Mountain Holdings. Um, and that gives us the opportunity to start to write our own script moving forward because, you know, at the time, um, you know, the, the previous owners of the private land wasn't going to do anything. If the owners of the resort wasn't going to do anything, they were kind of in a stalemate. So this kind of brought everything back together and get it, gave us the opportunity to start moving forward with the entire master plan, not only the master plan on the, the U S forest service land, but the master plan for the development in the base area as well. Okay, quick break, then back to Ken Ryder and Brundage. I've got an awesome deal for you. Snowbound Expo is coming. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Bode Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Vasu Sujitra, Danny Reyes Acosta, Lindsay Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opera Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use Storm at checkout. I will be there doing a live podcast and I hope to meet you in person. So lay this out for us, Ken, because this is really exciting. This this master plan, if any Brundage skiers have not seen this, uh, if even pieces of this get done, it, it is going to be enormous. I have some specific questions about all of this, but lay this out for us at a high level, Ken, for the listeners. What are the elements of Brundage's master plan and what, where are you at in the planning and finalization process of this? Well, we're uh, a, as part of the new ownership, we had to rewrite our master plan. The last one was done a number of years ago, 2008. And we were able to uh, rewrite the master plan going in, hopefully the, the final draft, um, sitting down tomorrow with the SE group to kind of finalize all of that and then hope to submit that 
to the Forest Service um, for their acceptance, hopefully within the next couple of weeks. Um, basically, you know, what Brundage sits on is just over 3,300 acres of special use permit on the U.S. Forest Service land. And we've been skiing on, you know, actively skiing on lift served 1,920 acres of, of terrain. But we've got area over in Sargent's Mountain on the other side of Sargent's off the backside or the east side of the mountain that we've not really even tapped into. I mean, we, we do a lot of uh, lift serve backcountry exp- exploration, if you want to call it that, or, or side country. I know we're not supposed to use that term, but, um, it, you know, it, it's great access. And so we've been really focused over the, the last couple of years of how do we expand out of our current, you know, 1,920 acres and start to utilize the, the rest of that terrain and, you know, talk about the lifts that we've had planned for years and how do we, how do we get them um, at least on the planning documents and start to figure out, you know, what's our timeline for the next 10 years and what the MDP is, the master development plan is our 10 year plan of everything that we'd like to do. And that includes uh, new lifts, upgraded lifts uh, of which the first one that we're going to upgrade is the centennial lift, which, you know, is a 32 year old SeaTech. Uh, lift that is becoming uh, fairly obsolete. We having a hard time finding parts. You know, it's a 16 minute ride. In, until two years ago, that lift didn't even run seven days a week. We changed that a couple of years ago. That was something our guests had been asking for years. Like, hey, you got Centennial Lift run it seven days a week. So we, we started running it seven days a week to that was very popular. Uh, but now we're going to be upgrading that to a high-speed quad. Basically the same alignment. We're going to change the bottom alignment a little bit better to make it a, a better guest experience and be able to, to load more people. Changes the the lift ride from about 16 minutes, or for some of our locals, that's a two-beer lift ride, to a, a, a one-beer <laughs> lift ride to six minutes and 30 seconds. So wow. we're excited about that. That's going to give us a lot of redundancy out of our base area. That we that we didn't have in the past, um, and then you know looking at you know where do we go next for our lifts? We've got you know sergeants. Sergeants has been on the the docket for many many years. We're also talking about uh, doing something on Temptation Knob, um, putting a, a new lift over there, and we're actually logging uh, that area right now, logging the lift run, and that's all in private. And then uh, starting to to work on some of the runs over there as well, and then. There's some opportunity off the east side, which is something that we've uh, been really exploring over the last couple of years as well. Looking at the current trail map, where is Temptation Knob? So Temptation Knob, yeah, is uh, the base would be west of the bottom of Centennial and Bear Chair. Okay. And then the knob is uh, what we hear the locals call um, Asian Nation got sensation, celebration, and temptation. And the knob is that area that those runs are on. But uh, basically the temptation lift would go from the bottom, um, almost the the south end of the property to the top of temptation knob and open up about five additional runs, probably 40 to 50 acres. um, And just kind of give us another opportunity for skiing over in that area. So you know, to, to tell you which one's going to happen first, is it Temptation or Sargent's or the East Side? That's all going to be up to economic conditions and then, you know, our visitation and, you know, what our guests and um, everything going on in the, in the in, from an economic standpoint points us toward. 
All right. I, I see it now. I see temptation knob now in the master plan. I was so focused on these new lists going up Hidden Valley and Sergeants and the backside that I ignored this little one down in the bottom. So let's talk right. about each of these in turn. Yeah. Because I think the Brundage skiers are going to be super pumped about these. So so temptation knob, that looks like mostly blue and green runs. That looks like a Fairly short lift. Uh, are you thinking fixed grip there or, or a high speed for the beginner stuff? What do you got in mind? That would probably be, at this point in time, I'm, I'm thinking a high speed um, quad. That's uh, 693 feet um, of elevation, but uh, it serves an area where, where there will probably be um, a day lodge at the top, as well as some uh, potential real estate or uh, residential areas along the south side of that. So it would you know, kind of service a, a ski in, ski out area, as well as an additional parking lot. How much does your snowfall vary from the bottom of the mountain to the top? It, is there going to be enough uh, snow in there to run that without snowmaking still? Or, or are you going to have to think about snowmaking as you expand this lower altitude terrain? There would be enough snow in there uh, without snowmaking, but that is an area that we have targeted for snowmaking on our MVP. Um, it's also on private land, so a portion of that we could put snowmaking in, uh, regardless of where we go with the MDP with the Forest Service. the The nice thing about you know when you talked about our 320 inches of annual snowfall, that's at the base. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and and that's one thing that individuals you know maybe don't understand is many resorts. Uh, when they talk about their annual snowfall, it's mid-mountain or above, right? Right. So, you know, we're talking about 320 inches at the base area. Okay. So I, what is your what is your mid-mountain total and why don't you go with that number? Well, we've been monitoring our mid-mountain over the course of the last two years. Actually, at the top, we've got a, right. an area, an, another snow stake just off the top of our Lakeview, uh, Lakeview lift. And we were seeing that, you know, between the bottom and the top there, the last two years, there's been about a, a 20 inch difference. Nice. Uh, last year was, last year was a terrible year after, after December, actually after January 6th. So I'd like to throw last year out, even though it was a fantastic year from a uh, visitation and a financial standpoint for the resort. But from a snow standpoint, it was terrible um, outside of December. It was our second snowiest December followed by our, second driest January, February, March, and first half of April. Then we closed. We got more snow after April 10th than we got the entire January, February, March, and April. So <laughs> just a, a bizarre year, right? But, you know, we're, we're, so we're, we're trying to really measure and figure out what we're seeing at the top. Um, but right now we're seeing about a 20-inch difference. So, you know, 220 at the bottom, or excuse me, 320 at the bottom, 340 at the top. And we're just sticking with the bottom for right now because we know that that's the one that we've been measuring for over 30 years. Yeah, Brad Wilson down at Bogus Basin was telling me the same thing. And they ended up reopening for one weekend in April because they just had such a stinker of a winter. And then all of a sudden, it just all came in at once. Right. Um, looking at Temptation before we move on, you have also a little on this on this version of the master plan, I'm looking at a little access lift off the backside. Is that a surface lift, a little chair lift? What? What's going to go there? Yeah, that would be a surface lift, probably a, a Pama or something like that, maybe a T-bar. Nice. Nice. So when you ski down Temptation, the run, uh, you come into a flat area right before you get into Asian Nation. 
And that T-bar would basically go from that location to the top of temptation knob. And that would help reduce the people. You wouldn't have to ski all the way to the bottom of temptation to get to the top of temptation and just make that a little bit more accessible from, uh, for people to get to the day lives that's up there as well as to, to get over to that additional parking lot. Nice. So moving clockwise around the mountain, right now the Hidden Valley area is open for skiing. You have to, in order to lap that terrain, you have to use Bluebird Express. You have in the master plan a lift plan for that area that would drop skiers at the top of the Hey Diddle Diddle run. What do you have in mind for that lift? That would probably be, be a fixed grip quad. Um, we're still, you know, a long way from figuring that. One of the things that we're working through right now is putting together a plan that we're accessing sergeants a lot more frequently with like a uh, unguided backcountry experience, much like you would see, you know, back in the day when uh, Wolf Creek was running the um, the snowcat over off the, what it was, the Alberta lift or where the Alberta lift is now, um, or at Copper where you could take the, um, the, you know, you could t- go back into Copper Bowl, hop on a snowcat. They would take you to top of Tucker Mountain, drop you off. Or at Loveland, the Ridge Cat. We're working on a program where we'd like to do something like that in Sargents to start to figure out and, and get more people on those runs over there because a number of those runs were cut about 20 years ago. Uh, so we're, we're looking at, like, how do we actively get in and, and manage the train that we've been given the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, manage through our special operating permit and uh, special use permit. So, you know, we're working on that program. I hope to be able to, to launch that either this year or next year uh, prior to us actually getting some lifts in there. But, you know, the hope is that we could run a, a snowcat up to the top of Sergeant's Mountain, drop people off, they ski down maybe to the bottom of uh, where you see the sergeant's lift going down to the uh, terrain to the north. You see sergeants and way back lift kind of coming together. Yep, and that, That's where people could get uh, ski down to, hop back on the cat, take a ride to the top or, you know, go to the top under their own, um, you know, self-guide or, you know, self-propelled skin to the top themselves, which is something that a lot of individuals, including myself, do now. It's really interesting the way that this is laid out in the way that the mountain is laid out and the way this master plan is set up, because it looks like from the way you just described it, you could build the Hidden Valley first and then have cat service over to sergeants, or you could you could build sergeants first and, and people could ski over there from the top of Bluebird Express like they're able to now. What do you have in mind as you, as you look at sergeants and way back those two lifts over there? What do you have in mind for those lifts? Those would probably be fixed grips, probably a double, maybe a quad. And, you know, it, it kind of depends on the economic outcome over the next 10, 15 years. Also takes his money, right? Right. <laughs> it, what about the, the Centennial Triple that you're taking out? It, you, it sounded like you said that lift is pretty much done with its usable life. But have you considered moving that over to one of these back areas? We, we had considered that in the past. And right now I'm talking to some individuals that uh, there, there could be, there's a small maybe, maybe resale market for that. Uh, but, you know, it's for, for our practical purposes, it's obsolete. And, 
we're ready to to get it out of there and, and get a high speed quad put in. It sounds like the way that you're oriented and the way that Brundage is oriented for the future is you're not interested in used lifts. It, you're, you're interested in new lifts, upgrading the experience, making this a modern resort. Is that fair? I'd, I'd say that's fair. Absolutely. So looking at Hidden Valley and Sargent's, what is the vertical drop on these lifts? Well, top of Sargent's is 7803. Uh, the bottom, man, you're giving me some questions I wasn't quite prepared for. <laughs> I can I can figure it out looking at the top on that, but, yeah. but they look like they're over a thousand. Is that? Yeah, it's, I think that Sargent's is like 16, maybe 1700. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a pretty, it, it, throwing Sargent's into the mix really adds a lot of advanced terrain that, mm-hmm. you know, Brundage is an intermediate skier's mountain. Um, mm-hmm. Adding Sargent's really changes the changes the ski ability and, and really broadens the, you know, the, the exposure that we'd have. It, it brings in a lot more black diamond runs. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it's pretty fantastic skiing over there. So, so when you look at Hidden Valley and Sargent, you say probably going fixed grip, is that just looking at, okay, this is more advanced terrain. We're not expecting the kind of volume we see on Bluebird and Centennial. Fixed grip will do it for these pods. Correct. And as we, as you go over to Sargent, it, it's interesting because right now, that's listed on the trail map as double diamond terrain. And I'm assuming that's because it's unpatrolled and that's basically a marker, like don't go here unless you're prepared. On the trail map, actually, it, or on the master plan, it looks like there's some blue runs running in there. So just talk about the terrain over there and how that can be developed for a more varied ski experience as you get over there and are able to put in a lift and build it out. What's the potential of Sargent's? Oh, I think the potential is great. I mean, a number of the the runs at the bottom, and if you're looking at the same map I'm looking at, Sergeant's 01, Sergeant's 02, yep, uh, yep. way back 01, way back 02, those were logged um, and opened up about 20 years ago. So those runs are there. And, you know, if you hike out to the top of Sergeant's right now, you've got a pretty, it, you know, it's it's some some big exposure um, good steep lines going down into some lower undulating terrain down to the, the bottom of where those lifts are. It's, it's a great experience and it really opens up some more advanced terrain for Brundage that uh, is something that our guests are asking for. So it looks like your, your permit area, the yellow dotted line going around the whole ski area, looks like it, like it extends actually skiers right of sergeants. That's labeled right here as cat skiing area. Is, is the yes. intention for the foreseeable future that there is always going to be that cat skiing component to Brundage? Or are you just saying this is enough for this master plan? Maybe a lift goes in there in 30, 40 years. Uh, right now, we're not looking at that. What, what's the Just kind of lay this out for us. If you look skiers right as sergeants, what that terrain is like and the long-term intentions for it. Right. Well, I think that, that uh, terrain to the north or to the skiers right of sergeants, there's a lot of advanced terrain in there as well that we would need to do a lot more exploring in to figure out what the opportunity is. But, you know, the, the MDP that we're working on right now is really what we'd like to do in the next 10 years. Another really cool feature of this MDP off the backside, you have two lifts proposed lifts, lift G and E side as they're labeled here. looks like a lot of more mellow terrain. Talk about the lifts and terrain pods off the backside uh, in, in what the potential is there and what you envision. Definitely that, you know, the, the east side lift would actually add a lot more intermediate and some beginner terrain. 
Mm-hmm. Um, two of the things that Brundage is, is kind of low on is the true beginner terrain and then the advanced terrain. So, you know, adding that east side lift gives us more opportunity to, to create some beginner terrain over there off the top of the mountain, as well as some uh, lower intermediate terrain. There are some, some steep shots and some shoots on that, in that east side pod that uh, would be fun to go out and, and hit. But really, that's a, a beginner and intermediate area. That's something that we're really excited about exploring more. And then, you know, kind of going into that lift G, which, you know, is probably more at the end of the 10-year plan. Um, that starts to add in some additional uh, upper intermediate terrain as well. Off, and, it, you know, it also services the top of Sergeant. So um, the east side lift is going to be a project that's going to take some time. Um, it probably includes us working on a, excuse me, uh, a, a boundary adjustment with the Forest Service. And that's something that uh, we're looking at and have been talking to the Forest Service about. From this map, the east side lift, especially in lift G also, they look like pretty long lifts. Do you think that you would be looking at high speed on the backside there? We think that those would be fixed grips as well. Really focus the, focus the the high speeds on the front. So you're getting, getting people up and out of the base area because what we found is, you know, even on our busiest day, if you get people up and out of the base area and get them over to the lake view and, you know, get them into exploring where they want to do the, the mountain for the most part kind of swallows people up. And even on our busiest day, you, you've kind of, you've, you've got an experience where you're enjoying it with you and your closest group of friends. So what is the, do you know what the vertical drop is off the east side there? The east that side, east side lift thing? is about 1800. I mean, this is, this is a lot of terrain. If you built this out fully, you said that your permit area earlier, you mentioned was 3,300 acres. If all of these lifts that are in this master plan are built out, what would the ski, lift serve skiable acreage be of Brundage? That would most likely be about 2,500 um, skiable acres. I mean, that's huge. That's, I believe, bigger than Sun Valley. That's almost the size of Schweitzer. That would make Brundage one of the largest ski areas in Idaho. It already is one of the largest ski areas in Idaho, but it would really put you in that top two or three. What's the long-term goal here, Ken? If, if you look nationally, Brundage doesn't have the profile of Sun Valley or Schweitzer or Big Sky or some of these other upper Rocky Mountain resorts. Do you think that there's the potential there for Brundage to become a national ski destination with that great ski town in McCall right there and, and with this terrain built out and, and all this acreage? Is, is, that, is the potential there? And, and do you want that? Is that the goal? I, I think our position right now is to become more of uniquely Idaho regional ski area, um, ski resort. You know, we're, we're embarking on um, adding some residential areas. And, you know, right now our target is really our, is Idaho centric and, and keeping that, that kind of low key Idaho vibe. Um, you know, we're, we're owned by Idaho families. Um, I, I would say we're fiercely independent fiercely Idaho. And, you know, yeah, we're going to welcome anybody from anywhere, but uh, it's, you know, our, our target market right now is, you know, the Treasure Valley, uh, the Boise area. That's where a majority of our guests are coming from. 
that's where you see a significant amount of growth, um, not only in Idaho, but in the United States. Idaho is one of the, or excuse me, Boise is one of the, the largest up and coming um, cities in, in the U.S. right now. So we're, you know, we're seeing growth from that. But we also do see, you know, a, a number of people come over from, you know, kind of the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, uh, Portland areas are good targets for our, we from uh, for us, and we do see quite a visit, few visitations from from the, those locations. All right, a couple more qu- lift questions for you here before we move on. Bluebird Express is your existing high speed lift, dates to 1997. It's a high speed quad. Usually, when when high speed lifts get around that three decade mark, folks start looking at or talking about upgrading them. Have you thought about the future of Bluebird Express and whether that could eventually be a six pack, or are you pretty happy with it right now? Well, you know, we talked about six packs when we were talking about the Centennial lift upgrade and we made the decision that a six pack is definitely not um, the vibe that we would like to be. You know, it's that, that's too much. We're, you know, high speed quad is, is, is good for us and having two high speed quads out of the base area is perfect. We are um, doing some work on Bluebird and have been for a number of years. We upgraded all of the uh, computer electronics uh, over the last three years. Um, probably going to be doing some work on the haul rope here in the next two to three years. But, uh, you know, that that is our workhorse. I, I think you put in a, one of your questionnaires, that's the alpha workhorse, right? But we see, you know, Centennial kind of splitting the traffic and um, helping reduce the the load on, on Bluebird over, you know, after we get the, the new Centennial high-speed quad put in. So at the bottom of the mountain, you have this really awesome little beginner area called Beartopia, mm-hmm. and you have this really right. great kids map with all these badgers and bears and foxes on it. And I, I yeah. have a five-year-old, and I, if I showed him this map, we would be on the next plane to Idaho because this is like you've plugged into the five-year-old brain. This is exactly what they want. This is so cool. Um, zeroing in on this area, you have a triple chair there. Uh, you have a conveyor. Long term, thinking about that area is—is is that enough? Is one conveyor enough? Would you like to develop that area a little more? Maybe make some progression carpets, or 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 is that area pretty set for now from your point of view? No, it's not set. Okay. You know, Beartopia, uh, the marketing team sat down a number of years ago and was like, "Guys, man, we have this great little asset here—the Bear Chair, Easy mm-hmm. Street. You know, we've got." Grizz, Badger, Red Fox, um, the Bear Run, Centennial Lane, Easy Street, and Roller Coaster. We've got, you know, the Easy Street chair and then the, the Easy Rider carpet. We've got this this zone, right, that mm-hmm. we haven't tapped into. And we, you know, sat down with our ski and ride school and said, guys, man, this is this own little resort and it's it's in its own right. How do we promote the heck out of this thing? And that's where Beartopia uh, came out of. Um, and, and that's just the beginning. I mean, we'd like to really animate that entire area. Um, you know, we've got, um, so you've got some great, you know, um, skiing terrain in there um, that, you know, we're going to be expanding the whole easy street roller coaster area as we kind of adjust our infrastructure um, just to the skier right of roller coaster is the existing entrance to the, the main parking lot um, over the course of the next year, that existing entrance is going to get shifted to, uh, to the West 
And we're basically going to be expanding roller coaster in the easy street by another third of a, uh, another third of the space that's there. So um, yeah, it's going to expand that, that true beginner train, almost double it actually. Wow. Um, we're, we're filling in an area there, kind of expanding it. And that, that'll happen over the next two years. Uh, we're actually looking at adding another uh, conveyor in that area. So you've got Easy Rider and then probably down lower would be a next and a little bit longer conveyor. So that really creates that, that uh, entry level, true beginner terrain space. Um, great terrain learning area, maybe a little uh, kids or a, a very beginner uh, terrain park in there as well. So we're, we're kind of expanding that area and then continuing to focus on what can we do in the whole Beartopia zone to make it more animated uh, for those five-year-olds. Um, and so that, you know, that five-year-old is telling you, get on the plane, dad, let's go check out Beertopia. <laughs> um, and that's exactly what we're trying to do in that area. So uh, look for Gosh. some future expansion in, in that whole zone. Gosh, between that and and if you connect that to that new temptation zone that's outlined here, that is just going to be such a great little beginner zone. And and if snowmaking is key anywhere, it's for the beginners. And you alluded to your low volume of snowmaking earlier. So just talk about your current snowmaking plant, Ken, and and what are the challenges that you're facing as you look to build out Brundage's snowmaking into the future? And how much do you want to build it out? Right. Well, we would like to, to build it out quite a bit. Uh, our snowmaking right now is focused only on private land. We don't have existing uh, authorization to make snow on U.S. Forest Service land. And the new master development plan addresses that and puts snowmaking on uh, Main Street, which is one of the main runs off the top of the mountain, as well as Alpine, which is early season. And it, it, basically, it's uh, the race training run for the local McCall Winter Sports Club. Um, and then on the whole, in the whole Beartopia zone, uh, putting snowmaking on Badger, Red Fox, uh, Jammer, as well as uh, the Bear Run and making sure and ensuring that we can have that, you know, that Thanksgiving opening with ideally uh, Easy Street and Bear Chair um, at the least. Um, ideally, it'd be, you know, Easy Street, Bear Chair, and Bluebird with either Main Street or Alpine uh, open, you know, starting Thanksgiving weekend to kind of capture that, you know, that first kickoff of the ski season. So, you know, that's that's where our plan is. And then with some additional snowmaking over on what I alluded to earlier, which is Asian Nation, which, you know, Sensation, Celebration, Temptation, those are some, you know, north-facing runs that once they get snow early in the season, because uh, they're north-facing, that that snow sticks and, and sticks around there. But to, to augment that with um, some snowmaking would, would be ideal. And what is your potential water source looks like? It sounds like it's a matter of permitting, but is the water there if you can get permission to tap it? We do have ample sources of water. Uh, we've got, you know, one main well in the base area, actually two, one at the bottom of Centennial on private land, one at the, in the base area. And then we've uh, just established three additional wells up on the north end. So we'll be working over the course of next summer, putting in a 400,000 gallon 
water tank on private land that would help uh, take care of any of our future development in residential areas as well as the base area. We do have an existing 100,000-gallon tank uh, on the mountain on U.S. Forest Service land just underneath, um, actually right beside the, the Red Fox Chipmunk intersection. And that's where our, our current snowmaking system uh, water comes from, as well as all the water for our existing lodge and ski school building. So to be able to expand our storage capacity is, is what we need to do to really get our, our snowmaking up and running, as well as getting approval from the Forest Service to install snowmaking on the Forest Service land. So while you work on that, there's also some pretty exciting building projects in the master plan one of which will be a 20,000 square foot base lodge. Uh, just for context, how does that compare to your present lodge? And what's the timeline for that new lodge to come online? Well, how does it compare? It would be new. <laughs> so, <laughs> Size-wise, I meant. Right. It, it's a little bit uh, larger than the existing lodge. Uh, okay. Certainly designed to be more efficient from a service and employee uh, experience. You know, right now, the existing day lodge um, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful lodge. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just kind of leave it at, no, it's actually, it was the, the original day lodge, which is a tri ad, try, you know, a triple a frame, um, is what the existing lodge is built off of. And each year, every couple of years, they just would kind of get a little busier. Let's, let's do an expansion. So the existing lodge kind of looks like a, to me from the, from the air, it looks like a, an old steamship right. um, that you would see on the Mississippi Delta. <laughs> um, and it's, it's been expanded to where it can't be expanded anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, it's probably costing us just as, money, as much money to operate it as it is to take care of it. So we're um, really excited about the new uh, Mountain Adventure Center portion of the Day Lodge, as well as the new Day Lodge, which really integrates into the existing ski and ride school building and takes everything from, um, you know, this kind of goes back to what the guest has been telling us, right? If, if you're arriving at Brundage and you wanted to go get a cup of coffee or grab a sandwich at lunch, you get to take 52 stairs from the parking lot up to the cafeteria to get a hamburger at lunch. Wow. Um, the new Day Lodge, the new Mountain Adventure Center takes all of that and puts it on basically the parking lot and the snowfront level. Wow. And gets everything down to a level that it becomes very guest friendly, um, definitely much more efficient to operate. Uh, we're, we're really working hard to keep a, a low profile so that when you drive into Brundage, instead of seeing this huge, massive three, four or five story building, you, you see this kind of, it looks like a one story building, but then you see the mountain behind it because we're all here for the mountain, right? We're all here to ski and ride. We're all here to mountain bike in the summertime. So why build your day lodge to overshadow that mountain experience? So we're, we're trying to right size it so that it actually enhances the mountain experience. Um, nice walkway going into the, the snow front and then right out to the snow and then right on uh, Bluebird Express or uh, scooting down Centennial Lane to the bottom of the Centennial Express high-speed quad. So that's where we're going with the Day Lodge and the new Mountain Adventure Center. And just to make everything much more 
uh, efficient for the guests. I mean, currently right now, if you're renting skis, you walk up three flights, four flights of stairs to rent your skis. And then if you're going to ski and ride school, you got to go hop on your skis. And if you're a brand new skier and you don't know how to ski, you have to somehow get down to ski and ride school. So either you're walking or you're tumbling. And uh, we would prefer people be able to skis, walk right out of the snow front, check in with ski and ride school, and then right up to the lift. So trying to think, make things uh, a lot more efficient for the guest and the guest experience, as well as the employee trying to, to service the guest. So what's the timeline on that lodge, Ken? That all sounds great. Is this part of the master plan that you're waiting on approval for, or is this in process already? That's in process already. Uh, due to the construction challenges that we all faced this summer with the price of concrete, the price of materials, the you know supply chain challenges, and just some of the steps that we needed to do to take and prepare ourselves to get that Mountain Adventure Center out of the ground, um, we, we pushed the Mountain Adventure Center to next spring. Um, and there was a couple of things that we needed to do. You've never been to Brundage, but uh, in the past, if you came to Brundage and you, you know, bought a lift ticket, you came out of the lift ticket zone and you basically skied down to ski up to go to the Bluebird lift. Um, we had to kind of regrade that whole base area. So basically everything's on uh, Bluebird grade level. And so that, that entailed uh, us uh, demoing our ski patrol building and tearing that off of the existing ski school building and then filling that area with about eight feet of fill. When you, when you tear down your ski patrol building, you have to build a new one, right? So we're, we're building a new ski patrol building on the west side of the ski school building. And that's, that's on schedule right now for a delivery timeframe right around November 1st in about 30 days. So I'll be, I'll be going out there to make sure that we're still on target there here shortly. But uh, <laughs> that new ski patrol building will have some administrative offices in the top of it. Um, definitely will be there to help uh, service our guests more as well as being more efficient for our ski patrol. Um, and those are just some of the stages that we had to do to get in place before we actually break ground on the Mountain Adventure Center. So um, along with that, we're um, renovating the existing ski school building, prepping it to be ready to attach to the Mountain Adventure Center and um, fully plan on coming out of the ground next spring um, with the Mountain Adventure Center breaking ground, uh, finishing off the ski and ride school building, uh, breaking ground on the Centennial Express installation and uh, you know, kind of continuing full force on all of the, the development plans that we've got going on. So you've got another really cool building project in the master plan, and that's finally some residential development at the mountain. So talk about what the potential is here and the first step of building some homes right there at Brundage, which I believe is something you've never had before. Correct. It is something that we've never had before. It's been something that's always been in the uh, master plan for the private land. And the timing had just never, the timing and the ownership just never aligned to actually start getting that uh, kicked down the road. 
what we're working on right now is all of the infrastructure for that residential area. And that res- the initial residential area, phase one, is called the Northwoods, which consists of about 22 single-family home lots and 21 cottage sites. The 22 single-family home sites uh, have all been reserved. And you know, right now what we're doing is working on the infrastructure, uh, which is you know roads, power, sewer, fiber, um, trying to get that all put in place over the next year so that we may see a potential first foundation um, start to go in maybe in the fall of 2023. But we need to get, you know, the roads put in, um, all the infrastructure and, you know, water, sewer, power, get that all dialed in so that uh, we're ready to, to get that going. So this is really terrific development for the folks that have the means to buy these homes. Is there plans or potential long-term to build some kind of hotel or, or rental condos or something for folks who just want to come up for a weekend? There, there is. And, you know, that's where we see kind of those cottages and, and some of the maybe single family homes. Those all have the opportunity to become and be put in a rental program through mm-hmm. Brundage. And then, but, you know, we've got, you know, phase one, phase 1.1. There are townhomes um, that we're starting to work on uh, designs and plans for. Phase two would also include some townhomes kind of on that area that's just west of the main uh, parking lot. And then, you know, we are in discussions with uh, some additional service providers or vendors that would uh, potentially look at, you know, some type of condo hotel or uh, hotel type property that uh, could augment single family homes, townhomes and and cottages and everything like that. And what that really does for for Brundage is, you know, and any destination resort, right, is it gives us the opportunity to put more heads or heads and beds and butts and seat midweek. Um, you know, we've got plenty of inventory uh, for skiing Monday through Thursday. And, you know, to have some overnight accommodations up here to help kind of smooth out those Monday through Thursday uh, timeframes would, would be just, it would be great for Brundage. So I'm really interested in your approach here, Ken, because we have a, a similar situation here in the East. I'm based in New York and our two biggest ski areas, Gore Mountain and Whiteface, are owned by the state. And because they're on what's designated as forever wild land here in New York, you can't build any sort of condos or anything on the mountains. Both of the mountains are close to pretty cool resort towns. So Whiteface is close to Lake Placid, about 10 miles away. And Gore is close to Lake George, which is about 30 30 minutes away. And both are terrific towns. However, and and they're situated sort of the same distance away from McCall as, as Brundage is. So me as a weekend skier who lives down in New York City, if I want to go up and visit these mountains, I have to stay in the resort town, pack up my kids in the morning, take them up. Big pain in the butt. And frankly, it keeps me from going there as a vacationer. Locals, however hate the idea of having condos built slopeside. They like it natural. They like it wild. Curious if that dynamic is echoed at Brundage. Are there people who just say, this is the mountain, this is skiing. We don't need any houses. They can stay down in McCall. And I'm sure there's people who like me are very relieved to see this sort of slopeside lodging come into place. Does that tension exist at Brundage? And how are you managing that so that you bring in this amenity for the people who want it and can afford it without spoiling that 
atmosphere of Brundage as being this wild, beautiful place in the mountains? The, uh, the tension does exist for some individuals. And a number of individuals are like, yes, this is also going to help make uh, Brundage a more sustainable business in the future. So, you know, the one thing that's really nice about the pockets of uh, private land that we do have, even if they do get built on, um, it is going to feel very natural. And, you know, it's not like right in your face where you may go to some ski resorts and, you know, the, the homes are integrated into some of the runs and, you know, things like that. So the whole Northwoods, it is, it's pretty much, it's tucked off the side of the mountain and you don't really see it. A lot of people ski by it and don't even notice that it's there. Um, but, you know, th- there is that tension and that's something that we will continue to work on and, you know, um, work on those relationships. But, you know, it kind of goes back to what we're trying to do and, and that's to, to right-size everything and not make it this overwhelming, huge base area. And we really want to, you know, I would say augment what's already offered in McCall. Um, you know, we're not trying to, to take anything away from McCall. McCall is the destination. And we're one of the uh, recreational opportunities that is a great reason to come to McCall. Come to McCall, stay in McCall, eat in McCall, maybe stay up at Brundage in the future, maybe eat up at Brundage. But, you know, McCall is where you're going to see the significant amount of options for dining, shopping, things like that. So we're not really embarking on creating this master designed base area that you might see at a, a more established, you know, you're, you're creating this little mini village. We're, we're creating a village, but it's, it's more about the mountain um, and integrating the mountain because we're just that kind of, we're that conduit between McCall and the rest of Payette National Forest and the rest of the recreation around here. So those locals that may not necessarily care about condos have to be pretty happy with the price of your season pass. $4.99 was the starting price going into 2022 to 23. I believe it's a bit more now, but talk about the importance of keeping your season pass affordable and how you go about pricing that thing each year. Is anybody really happy with the price of a season pass? (laughs) I I think think 500 for a, a mountain of your size it's pretty reasonable, but, uh, it's a, but that's me. <laughs> it's, it's a smoking deal. And, you know, when, when you look at the industry and you look at, you know, what places are charging, you know, we do want to be an affordable option. Um, I, I would say we're, we're tending away from being cheap or affordable to like, hey, why don't we provide a great value? Uh, when you can buy, like right now, you can buy a season pass for 800 bucks. And, you know, that, that if you ski eight and a half to nine times, you're going to get your money back. I mean, that's like you're skiing free the rest of the season. So, you know, we're, we're working on making sure that we provide a, a very value-based um, season pass product, lift product, four-pack product. And then, you know, our relationship with the Indy Pass is a great intro to, to Brundage and basically the the Western central um, region of, of skiing in, in Idaho. So let's talk about the Indy Pass here, Ken. You were an inaugural member of that pass back in 2019. What about the Indy Pass appealed to you out of the gate? And what made you jump on as sort of a pilot ski area when the product was still unknown and unproven? 
Uh, I, when Doug Fish and I started talking about it way back in the day, 2018, 2017, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had explored a number of reciprocal type deals um, with a number of individuals. Uh, Dave Rathbun and I tried to put together, he's at Purgatory now, tried to put together a deal with Bachelor, Targi, uh, I believe Schweitzer at the time, um, where it was like this, you know, trifecta type pass and had really been exploring and thinking that there's something out there that uh, kind of fits the more independent, smaller ski areas. And, you know, when, when Doug really started putting pencil to paper and trying to figure out, hey, this is the plan and this is what I'd like to do. Uh, to me, it was just like, this is exactly what I've been, we've been working on as a group of a, a bunch of individual resorts. But having somebody to to really take the ball and run with it was what we what we needed. And uh, Doug was the guy. And you know, as soon as he's like, "Here's what I want to do," I'm like, "Sign me up." So we we signed up. I think we were the first ski resort ski area that uh, signed up. And um, you know, it's it's been great for us. So Brundage, India has been pretty good for Brundage too. The ski area has finished in or near the top 10 for Indy Pass Redemptions for each of the past three years. I think that's owed in large part, especially since Tamarack came online, of that Brundage-Tamarack combo, and folks can really get four days on the pass pretty easily in a long weekend. We've seen, as these mega passes have unfolded, we have seen some tension with locals, particularly I'm thinking of the Icon Pass in 2018 at places like Jackson and Big Sky and Aspen. There's a big difference. You know, obviously there's a lot more icon passes out there than Indy passes and Indy pass only provides two days versus icons five or seven. I'm just curious as the Indy pass has grown in popularity and as Brundage has become one of the more popular resorts on the pass, has this started to become a factor and contribute in any way to crowding or, or is the two day limit enough in, in the fact that this is not a pass that's selling hundreds of thousands of passes each year. Has that been enough of a limiting factor so that it's a nice little bonus, but it's not really changing your business in any fundamental way? It is a nice bonus. It, uh, to be honest with you, it's less than 2.7% of our total visits. Oh, wow. And we did, uh, for the first time, we blacked out some of the holidays um, just from the learnings that we had, not from the Indy Pass visitation, but from our season pass and ticket visitation from previous years. Um, so we, we decided to, to block out some holidays. And, you know, that really helped us uh, this year. And, and we've been in the top 10 each of the, even including the inaugural year before Tamarack, which is exciting for me. And I hope that we can stay there, right? You know, as, as the Indy Pass adds more resorts and more resorts on the East. So, you know, we've done some things to make sure that we're massaging and uh, taking care of our our peak days, where we're we're very um, trying to keep that low capacity model on our peak days, so that we're not overwhelming our guests by having significantly long lift lines for you know lift line lifts tickets you know just everything, um, and and that's worked well for us. So uh, we're really managing our capacity, and uh, the Indy Pass has been one of those products that introduces Brundage as well as Tamarack to individuals that may have not come here in the past. And, you know, I get out and I ski every day. Uh, actually I ride every day. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. and I, I probably wasn't a 
a week that went by that I didn't talk to at least, you know, one or two indie pass holders that were like, oh, this is a great product. We would have never come here. We were, you know, this has really gotten us out and about and skiing more and um, kind of reintroduces people to the charm of the small independent ski areas. So um, I, I think Fish, Doug kind of nailed it on the head with that product. So you've done a, so, so it sounds like you're pretty happy with the Indy Pass. Nonetheless, you've kept quite a few reciprocal partnership deals for your season pass holders on their season pass, which means that they get free days at select ski areas and those ski areas pass holders get free days with you. What th- th- There are some good ones on there that aren't on Indy Pass. You get a little Tahoe with Diamond Peak and Homewood. Uh, you get some Mount Bohemia days, which is a really unique resort. You get a little Colorado with Loveland and Monarch. You know, these are free days. These are comp tickets. So right. skiers from Loveland come up and you just give them a free lift ticket. I kind of thought that these would fade when the Indy Pass came along, because every time an Indy Pass skier comes along, you get a paycheck for that. What what makes these reciprocal tickets continue to appeal to you as a manager of a ski area, even as the Indy Pass has introduced this alternate model that pays per visit? Well, some of it goes back to the old equation, trial plus experience equals demand. Um, you know, we're, we're driving some trial with some of those products. And if, if you've been tracking our reciprocal deals, we're actually starting to back out and, and reduce the number that, that we are offering. We haven't completely backed out, but you know, that was another thing that the Indy pass did provide that the reciprocal products didn't was a guaranteed paycheck. Um, and, and that goes back to, you know, we were like, what, why are we offering these reciprocal deals? I mean, right now it's part of its value. We're adding some value to our season pass holder, but we are backing out of them. We're starting to reduce the number of partners that we have. And I, I think you'll see that uh, as IndyPass continues to be successful, I, I think you'll see that that number continues to shrink. And, and we're starting to learn about you know, who's coming and who's not on those reciprocal deals and who's figured out the system um, and, yeah. and who's not. And, you know, there's there's some hedging that we've had to put in place because of really just tr- truly understanding, you know, what we're seeing from those reciprocal deals. But uh, that's something I think that will fade away. All right, Ken. Well, this is all really good insight. I think I've kept you long enough for today, but I really appreciate everything. And and really wish you the best of luck with this master plan. This is really exciting. I hope you have a great winter to uh, to really give some juice to this whole thing. And and I hope to get out there and take some turns with you sometime. Well, that would be great. And uh, let me know when I can put that five-year-old in uh, Beartopia Ski School. Oh, I'd love that. Um, I would love that here. too. So <laughs> thanks, nice. for, thanks for uh, your time today, Stuart. This has uh, been a true enjoyment. All right. We'll take you up on that, Ken. Thanks so much. That's Ken Ryder, General Manager of Brundage Mountain, Idaho. Thank you very much for that, Ken. Awesome job. And I am looking forward to unleashing my boy on Beartopia. I like these people on social media who try to hit me with this line like, oh, the Indy Pass doesn't have anything out west worth traveling for. I get that all the time, and it's such a bad take. It's especially rich coming from skiers in the Northeast. Perspective time, guys. Brundage is the same size as Killington the largest ski area in the east, and unlike K-Town, 
which counts unskiable, cliffed out woods and shrub brush as skiable terrain, you can actually ski all of Brundage. Even if you're comparing it to the big dogs, Sun Valley only has 400 acres more than Brundage. But pair this with a Tamarack run on your Indy Pass and you are going to have a damn fine four days of skiing. All right, I just keep booking more pods. This week, booked Jody Churich, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Breckenridge, Colorado. You all know Breck. You've all got something to say about Breck, and I am really pumped up for that one. It's not until spring though, but plenty headed your way in the meantime. Got a doubleheader next week, Nubs Knob, Michigan, followed by Sun Valley, Idaho. Then, in this order, you will be receiving podcasts from Winter Park, Bromley, Monarch, Sundance, Point Resorts, and Vail Mountain, and many more after that. To make sure you get those episodes the moment they are live, I will ask you to please sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.